Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us, Mike. It's going to be really fun to have the team get to know you a bit. And there's some things about you I didn't know, so I'm going to be really excited. A lot of things to ask. I don't know either. Yeah. <laughs> I'm old enough; I've forgotten everything. So no. I'm up as I go. No, so please tell us about where you were born and what it was like growing up there. Yeah, so I, I mentioned I was grow I was born in Palo Alto. Uh, grew up all my life in the Bay in Palo Alto until I moved here. Not that long. I moved here in the full time. I came here, bought a place here in 82. So Park City was very different wow. back then. And we moved here uh, when my kids started second grade and they're now 24, almost 25. So whatever, that's 15 years ago, 16 years ago. But I all my life was in Palo Alto. What was what was it like back then? Well, as they tell people, it was Silicon Valley 1.0. I mean, it was super (laughs) nice, friendly. There was a little, you know, tech scene in uh, what's called the Stanford Industrial Park. And companies like Hewlett Packard and Varian and others were getting, you know, had started and get going. Um, And it was a very cooperative kind of place um, and very, very different. Uh, I mean, a good example when I was probably 13, we went on up to Alaska. I was looking for you, but you probably weren't alive then. Um, <laughs> but we went up to um, the Swan Lake Canoe Trail and going over Anders Pass on a Sierra Club trip. And you know, that was, it was right after the earthquake actually. So it was an amazing time to go up there. But the reason I bring this up is that in today's world, if you were gonna go on a trip and Zuckerberg or Bezos, they'd fly their private jets and take over the whole thing. On our trip, which was, you know, typical kind of thing, Sierra Club trip. We went up and we were doing these portages up on those things. And this guy, you know, carried his own canoe and he'd done all these first ascents in Yosemite. It was Bill Hewlett of Hewlett Packard. Wow. And that's how Palo Alto was. I mean, there was no pretense. He drove a Plymouth station wagon with his kids. They went to the same schools. None of this fancy lifestyle that has taken over Silicon Valley and in the tech world. And it was a really wonderful place to grow up that way. But here was this guy who was sort of iconic. If you think about particularly, you know, in the in the late 60s, you know, Hewlett Packard was the company. It was the best mm. place to be trained. All the best engineers went there was, you know, things. And he just went on trips just like any of us could have signed up. You know, he paid your $500, go to Alaska, go camping. And there was no wow. pretense. So that's how I grew up um, there and had a lot of exposure to Silicon Valley. I went to school there, uh, sort of started to see it, you know, evolve. And um, I said, it was it was a really special place. As you said, there was orchards, which are now full of, you know, Silicon, but uh, um, it, was, it wasn't Silicon Valley. It was never called Silicon Valley at that time. Yeah. Um, what were, expectations on you as as a young person. well i'm i have um three siblings i'm the third uh-huh. and so that sort of you know has its own dynamics um my parents i grew up in sort of in a you know right on, around the stanford campus and so there were sort of high expectations sort of from that standpoint but my parents were very open very liberal this was a time of a lot of stuff going on in the Bay Area and, and actually the world in the height of the Vietnam War. Um, my parents just encouraged us to do whatever we wanted to do, but do it well. And and uh, we aspired to do well. I, I went to school in Palo Alto and college there. And but it was just, you know, find your own path. Um, and we were we were challenged in the sense that the expectations are high just because we were surrounded by some 
pretty interesting people that were friends of my parents. And uh, um, as I said, you know, you, you run into these people like a billion. And I, as a young kid, I saw Silicon Valley sort of take, I saw venture capital take off. Um, venture capital in the Silicon Valley really started about 1962 uh, with a gentleman named Art Rock and, and a guy named Tommy Davis, who ultimately I ended up working with, for, uh, or for, with him for 20 years. But, you know, it was mimeograph annual reports and a quarterly reports, and I'd see these little startup companies, and I ended up going to college as an engineer in graduate school in engineering and did a rotation first. I took time off at, at Stanford and got a uh, some kind of internship at IBM doing disk drive design stuff. And I said, this is horrible. I almost got fired twice trying to be an entrepreneur, doing things there. So I can never work in a big company. It's not for me, which was the best lesson, right? Because I traditionally coming out of school, those were the companies that were recruiting and, you know, Ford Motors. And I said, I'm not going to do this. But I was reading these little things about these startups and that intrigued me. And so I said, I want to sort of go down sort of that startup-y kind of path. And I would read these mimeograph sheets from this guy, Art Rock. He started this firm called Davis and Rock. And they were the first, for, that venture firm was $3.2 million. That was a entire fund they had. They returned $90 million. So it was a very successful fund. And that started some really interesting dynamics. And, and I would ski with this guy, Art Rock, as a kid. And so I'd hear these stories and all this. I said, now that's sort of fun because you get you use your sort of engineering and creative stuff. And I said, I'm not going to be a great engineer, but maybe I can just be in a creative place where engineers are and sort of relate to them because I sort of have an engineering degree. And I said, that was sort of my path. So I think it was absolutely fundamental that I was there at that time and had that exposure to what has transpired now for my career, my life. Well, Mike, what? You talk about this, hey, I was in this area by Stanford. Everybody had high expectations. We were around these great people. What created that? Is it is it just an artifact of Stanford? Well, I'll use my father as a that? good example. I mean, you know, Stanford, um, there was a guy, uh, Dean Terman, who was the dean of the School of Engineering, who encouraged the cooperation between a university and industry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, encourage things like Hewlett Packard, you know, start companies and have this relationship with universities. My father's a good example. So after when he was, when the war, the Second World War, he was a young um, engineer or actually a physicist out of MIT. He'd never been east. He grew up in Brooklyn and in New York area, never been west of probably the Poconos. But he was hearing all these stories from these people from the Bay Area that had come out to work on a particular project during the war for um, radar detection systems and things. And they, so he got intrigued. He married my mom and they said, we're going west. Get in the car, go west. And these guys started a company called Varian. And my father was fortunate to be early there as head of uh, director of research or whatever it was. And it was just like this West, like go West, why not? You know, we'll try things in this openness there. And and that was, there was just that whole influx of people and uh, that was really quite amazing at that time. I mean, there wasn't something, there was, you know, tubes, vacuum tubes and all that kind of stuff that they were doing and, and a variety of different things. But um, it was just, a, as I said, there was, you fail, failure was accepted. I think that's, you know, we all talk about that. I think that's not an East Coast, Boston kind of thing. That's definitely a West Coast kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I think just that attitudinal thing, 
I didn't know that because I grew up in, a, in, in, in the West where failure, just try things, do things, be open stuff. And, and it became more obvious as I saw the influx of people later in my life who came from the East and the West. It just, you know, it, it took a long time for those East Coast people to adjust to the West Coast life. And, that, and they were very successful, but it just took a while. Mm. But it was, uh, and, and timing was everything because the valley sort of took off. I mean, it wasn't Silicon Valley, but it started to develop. And just my timing when I graduated, coupled with sort of this, you know, change, obviously semiconductors started taking off, um, Apple started taking off, all those things just happened. I mean, literally at your footstep and you grew up with all those people. So, well, this is sort of a, there are gonna be jobs and opportunities. Let's just make a living here. So you were studying engineering in college and that was obviously your aspiration, at least before. Well, it, it sort of was. I, um, <laughs> you know, typical high school, we all had high school guidance counselors that are horrible. Um, you know, <laughs> I love, you know, I was sort of good in math and science at school. Um, and I liked art and creativity and architecture, which I really do like and still to this day. So I went thinking that's what I wanted to do. Um, Stanford, fortunately for me, two things happened. One, the architecture program was really lousy in my view. I didn't like it. Uh, I spent two years, but it was in the School of Engineering. And that coupled with me, because all our first few years were pretty similar. And we started, there was a program in mechanical engineering where architecture sat at that time that became the D school. It wasn't the D school. So I grew up with a guy named Dave Kelly. We went ended up doing graduate school together. It was called product design in design. Mm -hmm. So it had aspects of architecture in the sense of a lot of creative kind of thing, more than your hardcore thermo kind of ME. And I love that. I said, this is great. As I, after my sophomore year, I thought, do I go to MIT to really do real good architecture or do I stay at Stanford and do this product design, D school, creative thinking kind of engineering? And I stayed and you know, and then it just worked out. So is product design a predecessor to industrial design? Is that well, we actually, you know, and now that industrial design, you know, has gone away. I mean, in, industrial engineering, um, now it's called management science. But Stanford has this whole thing called the D School. I don't know if you've heard about this, which is this, um, you should look up, it's super cool. Huh. But it's, um, it's sort of creative thinking as applied to engineering is the best way I look at it. And this guy, a very dear friend of mine who was a graduate student with me, Dave Kelly, who started something called IDO. Mm -hmm. And so he started that and then he has led this D school at Stanford. And it's just an amazing program. And you can go online, take classes or look at it and listen. It's really super fun. So that was, that was great. And it was just full of really, really creative engineers doing fun stuff and building things and building products. And it was more product centric, which is what I liked. Very cool. Yeah. So you graduate and what do you decide to do first? So that was interesting. I graduated, this dates me. So I grew up in Palo Alto, five miles from where I, I went to school, five miles where I grew up. And I said, okay, I should probably go somewhere else. Um, I was graduating. So I interviewed after graduate school, a few places in Silicon Valley, because it had changed its name by then, Atari, which was Nolan Bushnell, who was a Utah guy, um, and Apple. And this is 1977 and decided that I'd never lived elsewhere. My brother was at school in, in Boston, Cambridge area. And I decided I wanted to go to Route 128. That was sort of actually more energy in the startup world in Boston than there was in Silicon Valley at that time. Mini computers, the, the decks and all these companies that no longer exist. 
Prime, Wang, all this kind of stuff. And I thought it'd be sort of fun to go to Boston. So I decided to go to Boston instead of staying in Silicon Valley. And a guy that was a venture capitalist who's now gone on, I mean, he's built an incredible firm. I went to him saying, help me find a startup because startups didn't show up at campus doing recruiting, particularly ones outside the Bay Area. And so he hooked me up with a little company right in Harvard, uh, the, the Cambridge, right in the thing. So I could really walk to work. And it was started by some MIT dropouts. It had all the, you know, the, the elements the you would love. Yeah, things, I mean, yeah. they were making LSD in the labs. It was crazy place. <laughs> um, it had all the things to start. And so I went there. Hey, where's our LSD? Yeah. yeah. And, and this was this is a $20 million company that was public. That was how the world was. And we were making wow. specific ion electrodes for really accurate measurement of different things from blood to water and chemistry kind of thing. Um, so I saw a lot there that was fun. I was a product manager on some things and spent a few years there. My brother was at school. So I, I just loved Boston. It was really super fun. Um, but the guy who was on the board was his venture capitalist. And I stayed in touch. So I come home and say, you think you know what's going on, but let me tell you what's really sort of happened. So it gave me sort of fun exposure. And I did that for a few years and then went back to Stanford um, to do an MBA because I thought that's what you do. And I wanted to get more in sort of this startup, potentially venture, the venture side of things. And that's what happened. So I went back to graduate school and fell into venture capital at a time when most nobody was getting venture jobs out of business school. And I got really lucky. And the same person that was on that board ended up hiring me to be his first partner or a partner that's an associate. There, there were three founding partners, two in the East Coast, one in San Francisco. The world had shifted where 70% of the deal flow was in the Bay Area. And he said, do you want a job? And it was the lowest paying job out of business school was being a, an associate of venture capital firm. And that's what I've done for 40 years. So one of the recurring themes, Mike, that we go through here is, is it nature versus nurture with respect to ambition and a willingness to work hard? Do you feel like you were self-motivated were we trying to do um, something? I, I think I was really lucky. Hmm. I think I was true, lucky in timing, lucky to um, a lot of things, encouragement by parents, in particular my dad on things, because he was dabbling in some venture stuff. He was a, I mentioned this guy, Art Rock. My dad was doing, had done some startups and he was at Stanford. So he was a little a limited partner in this fund. So I saw this as a kid, all this stuff mm -hmm. and got exposure to, which was really rare. You know, they, they were investing in these crazy, and I would just read these things and talk to this guy who started this venture fund. So it was luck and timing. And again, my parents said, you know, do anything. My brother, yeah, my, my yeah, my brother ended up being a very well-known artist. But you know, we were, my parents said, "If that's what you want to do, go off and do it." So it wasn't we weren't structured that way. Even though my brother had to take physics at Stanford, because my dad said, "You got to study all these things." My brother said, "Why the hell do I take in physics when I'm going to be an artist?" But that's uh, we we survived our parental uh, scars and and went on to have all four of us you know did well um, after that. But yeah, and 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 I think. Um, I had some really good mentors along the way. I'm a real believer in mentorship and, and I, you know, I've shared, you know, what I'm doing now, teaching at a class at BYU, but I started a program actually at Stanford or helped start a program at Stanford that's all about mentorship to kids now. We're 20 some odd year, 25 years into it. And I just think that when it, 
along all of our life's journeys that mentors outside of parents are incredibly valuable. And so if I can find them along my path and, and fortunate enough to listen more than I talk, I usually get something out of it. That's awesome. So 40 years uh, in the venture world, mm-hmm. I believe is what you said. 40. Well, let's not see. Many. Actually, 41 now. So we won't date ourselves. <laughs> but yeah, um, not many, not many have seen the full journey like you. I mean, that's that's a that's full a journey. Being, time. I've seen more failures than you'll ever see successes, <laughs> and that's actually true. And I tell my kids all the time. I mean, I have, I have litany of failures, and will continue to have that. But that's just life. In terms of investments, you mean? investments, stupid things I've done. You know, yeah, just mistakes and stuff, and or or things I didn't do that I should have done. You know, you said, why didn't you invest in this one? It you know took off, whatever. Tell us about one that resonates with you that you. Uh, that you think of often in which a, way a, a failure a failure oh failure. my gosh um well is uh, there one that stands out or there's yeah i'll give you i'll give one just i don't know why it just popped <laughs> in my mind because i can go on for hours there was a movie really bad movie a documentary movie called startup.com and it's about a company that i was uh, a very early investor in and it failed the even before we signed our term sheet in my view so it was a company that was trying to bring the internet to government, if you will, a company called GovWorks. And uh, what failed was it was a great idea and it was a typical Silicon Valley cluster that we heard about this deal. And this is what was happening in the Valley at that time. There were all these venture firms up on Santo Road where we were, and it was a hot deal, everybody wanted in. And you had to go, you had to win the deal. You had to win the deal, however that was. and. Um, and a lot of times it was really crazy what some people had to do. And we wanted to win this deal that was presented to us because we thought it was really exciting, very dynamic young uh, team. Um, and we met them like on a Thursday or Friday. Partners meetings typically were Monday mornings at nine o'clock. And we scrambled all weekend just you know, doing some stuff, doing the, you know, trying to do this. Thing. And on Monday we were making a decision. Like, you know, that's all we had. We had nothing. You know, really. And we sort of won this deal um, with, uh, in a weird way, with a, a firm that was inappropriate to do early stage called KKR, uh, which is a very large firm. By they, their office was in the same building as us. And because the returns in, in startups were so enormously high, firms like KKR wanted to start to do early stage. Um, and it was just crazy. This guy, Henry Kravitz, brilliant guy, but inappropriate for five people in a dog startup kind of things, which is what we did. Um, and our firm at Mayfield, you know, we were incubating companies. We had actually entrepreneurs in our office. We were starting companies. Um, I think I saw a small defibrillator here on the wall. That's a company I actually started, uh, you know, out of my office kind of thing. So that's what we were doing. Um, and the reason I say we failed at the beginning, we had a great CEO that was going to come in as part of this. And the company was going to be based in Silicon Valley. And that was the whole deal. And we sort of let this entrepreneur sort of push us a little bit where we, oh, we'll do that later. It never happened. The company ended up in New York City. The CEO didn't, it was a fantastic guy, dear friend. Never, he wasn't going to move to New York. And so it never happened. He ended up going to the board. It never happened. We let things go out of control because the entrepreneur, there was such a you know, race to get into this deal. We sort of signed all the term sheets. And the, at that point, I lost control of the company. 
because at, at the point I'm about to write, you know, whenever we're writing a few million dollar check to invest in this thing, is, you know, I should have said, well, well, we have a deal, right? It's going to be in Palo Alto, or actually, it wasn't going to be Palo Alto, but it was up in Redwood City. And Joel's going to be your CEO. Let's just, can we, I should have just made him put in writing. We did. We never got that back. And this thing, you know, the ego of the entrepreneur, his girlfriend, now ex girlfriend, uh, and of making a documentary film about the movie, about the company, unbeknownst to us as investors, why we're in it. And like, I never saw the film where they were hidden and they're doing this thing crazy. Wow. This guy had this ego that this thing was going to be, you know, this huge deal. And it was for a moment in time. I mean, we had every investment banker wanting to take it public. Um, he met with the president of the United States. You know, we had all these things, crazy stuff, but we lost control. He was, and I had to fire him and it was just a mess. And that was a lesson that just like slow down. Yeah. I mean, the heat of all the venture stuff going down, we were making decisions with no data in 72 hours to invest. Now, sometimes we were right, but that was a very painful several years for my life of going back to New York, going through this stuff, firing people, doing this thing. I mean, we had offices all around the world and we blew up. It was every, it was just, that was that wave of 2000 when things were just, right before that, you know, things were just so easy and things were flowing in in that sort of Web 1.0 world. Like so, you mentioned five people in a garage or something like yeah. that. And I don't, I have never met anyone sincerely like you where you can pick them at that stage. I don't know how you freaking do it. Uh, what do you, yeah. I'm sure there's, there is, some of it is some gut inside, but what is it that you see in five people that you can tell is going to be a hundred million dollar business? Now? Yeah, I'll, I'll use that defibrillator as a good example, yeah. maybe. Um, and I can use others just because I, I think I, think I saw one right here somewhere there. And if, if it's in a red thing, that's, our, that's the company. So that was a good example where, I, I worked in a partnership for 20 years. I'm still very, very close to four of us are actually still very, very close. So that, was, that told me I just worked in a really supportive environment where my partners let me fail. And we let each other fail to so take risks. And we used to have this black cloak. We laugh about it. And because we knew that was the nature of our business. So I went to the partners. I had started a company. I helped start a company that we incubated in our office that was building an internal atrial defibrillator. So think of it as like a pacemaker for a very complicated thing. We were, you know, and that got me thinking about cardiovascular disease and post MI situation. And I said, I have this vision to build a portable defibrillator. In my, my original vision, all my notebooks, I still found an old lab notebook the other day that it would be used one, if I could save your life and it could be used once, it's worth it, right? And I said, my dream is I want to have a small portable defibrillator to give to post-MI patients who have actually a very high incidence of second heart attacks and things. And if I gave it to you or you're, you know, you'd have it at home, whatever, and it was 500 bucks, that could be life-changing. Didn't quite get there. And I was dreaming about this and looking at data and traveling around the country, talking to electrophysiologists and different things about stuff. And an old fraternity friend of mine said his brother-in-law was up at a company at physio control up in seattle and they were one of the premier defibrillator companies and these were defibrillators that were sort of like you know the ones that go you know you see on tv and they'd had a issue with the fda and so there were some delays and stuff so these engineers were really frustrated so i flew up to seattle and we sat in this conference room at a hotel on halloween day so i'll never forget this and with these folks, and we just sat around just brainstorming. 
And I just knew four of them were engineers that were just incredible. And the other one was a great product manager type um, guy. And we sort of made him more of the business marketing guy who turned out to be fantastic at it. And I said, let's just do this. So then I had to go back to my partners on Monday. So we, I went up to Seattle and we just, you know, whiteboard and all this stuff. And so I said, these guys are amazing. I mean, if you ever wanted to do this, they are the team. They knew algorithms, particular algorithms that we needed for us for sensing electro, uh, electrocardial waves and all this. And they bought into my vision. They bought into, you know, I bought into theirs. So I went back to my partners and said, I want to start this company. And I want to start something that we're going to build defibrillators that we're going to sell to water parks and all these crazy places where you normally don't sell medical equipment, like offices like yours. And my partner said, oh, okay. And I said, trust me. So they gave me twenty-five dollars or $50,000 or whatever it was just to get these guys to quit and give them a little money just to get going to write a business plan. Mm-hmm. And that was that trust. And ultimately, I'd come back you know, every month later and say, we need a little bit more, a little more. And we ultimately built this company uh, up, um, ultimately took the company public. Wow. We actually, there's a funny story before that, that I'll come back to that was really amazing for a medical thing. And then we ultimately sold it to Phillips. Uh, we, we, we actually sold it to Hewlett Packard and then Hewlett Packard sold the whole division to Phillips. And we've saved more lives than all airbags in the United States based on that defibrillator. Wow. The thing that was crazy, uh, what, one of the things that launched, if you fly today on an airplane, all the airplanes have defibrillators. And ask, we all have friends who park seat that are flight attendants or pilots, because we have like a thousand of them here. And ask them the question, does anybody ever die on an airplane? And they'll look at you, and the answer is no. Because they have to decommission the plane. And so what happened in that case, we had launched our defibrillator, and we were selling, you know, kind of things. A guy was flying from Boston to San Francisco, bigger guy, mid forties on the thing. And they emergently landed in Salt Lake, actually, ironically. And they um, obviously tried to do something on their airplane. They declare him dead on the tarmac, which is what they do so that it's not in the plan. They don't have to do a commission plan. The family sued the airline saying you should have had a defibrillator. Wow, pretty good opportunity for a little startup. So we got approved quite quickly by the FAA, not just the FDA, but the FAA. And we ended up being the opening monologue on Letterman and Leno that night for a medical device. And I'm sitting there like, you gotta be, this is our marketing founder. And things just took off. Every, obviously every plane, all those things. And it was just this thing that was sort of a, a crazy story. And I tell to my kids who know this, I said, you know, I've been involved in things that have made my firm a lot more money than that company, but it's the one that I'm sort of in many ways most proud of, um, of how the team, the team, it's like what I see here. It was such a tight group. It was the, the first, we started the company in October, actually November, as I met them on Halloween. So the first Christmas party was like five guys, five engineers. So it wasn't, it's the next year we had more like this. <laughs> and it was such a tight team. I had a friend make me high school letterman jackets with a big H. It said heart stream on and the whole thing. And that's what it was. It felt like that kind of team that we've all had. If you've been on sports, and that's what it was that you'd walk around Seattle, you see people with these heart stream letterman jackets. It was crazy because we had this passion and drive what we were going to do. We we're going to save lives. And that's a pretty powerful thing to come to work every day, saying, I'm going to save lives. And we didn't bring the first person whose life we saved 
we brought somebody who's very early on, who was a young guy, young kids, lived in New York. He was a, um, I forget his job, but he was an NC2A basketball referee, a part-time. So he was in very good shape. He was running through the, the um, train station and uh, Grand Central Station, goes down. And these guys look at him and say, what do we do? We just sold him these devices, which as you know, you don't need any training on. They put it on, save his life. And so we invited he and his wife and his two kids to spend three days in Seattle to visit us for Christmas party. You want to see tears in people's eyes. He tells the story, goes around, meets everybody, and of course is saying, and says, she's a widow. They don't have a dad. Thank you very much. I mean, he gave a much longer speech and you realize you had a mission. And that was, that was something. And as a venture person, and, uh, you know, it was sort of fun. My friends, I got to be on some of the patents of this thing. It was like, I know that I had my calling. That was like, like a super cool. So that's been one of my all time favorite companies. One because I see it everywhere I travel. My kids say, Dad, remember that? And I said, there. But I, it was just feeling as you do when a team comes together on a, on a mission, which it wasn't about money which a lot of my companies are, they're about money, how much I'm gonna make and how am I gonna spend and all that crap, is like they could care less. They wanted to save lives and make a difference in the world. And that's, that's to me, has been a really privilege for me to have uh, an experience like that. That's amazing. Thanks yeah. for sharing that story. Yeah. Let me prepare the team to uh, get your questions ready. And I'll ask you one last okay. question as they think about that. You are the father to two, is there, um, <laughs> I, I talked about failure, right? <laughs> We're going into this thing. <laughs> no. I was going to say, um, as such, is there something from your childhood? You know, we all seem to either do something very differently than our parents did or, or, hmm. or obsess about something they did so right. So something like that that you feel was a good lesson for you that you could share with us around being a parent? Um, well, my dad had incredible curiosity mm. till the day he lived to 90. Um, and I think that's something that I sort of see and I, I encourage. Um, I love art and as I said, my brother's photographer. So I have a lot of art in, in, in what's now sort of the kid's office. And it's there's there's a few, actually I had some of these in my Mayfield office. One was a, a, a beautiful photograph from this well-known photographer. And it was an old, um, when we had chalkboards in school <laughs> and it was this chalkboard and all says, I don't know. And I had, it was this huge piece and I had it in our lobby in my office because I said, people come into my office or, or at Mayfield all the time and says, I don't know. I said, we don't know either, but we're going to go on this journey together. And I, so I have a lot of artwork about learning and stuff. Mm -hmm. I have another beautiful photograph from an artist and it's this young girl on those wooden desk kind of things, just with her hand up. And I've always encouraged my kids Everybody has a question. They're just too shy to raise their hand. The smart ones are the raising hands and doing it. Just ask questions and, and be brave enough to do that. And so that's something I just encourage. I said, that's how we learn and it's fun and, and doing that. Just to be curious. We don't know, but it's the path of learning that's so fun and trying things. And um, I said, I learn, as, you know, I'm teaching this class, which is sort of, he's my guest lecturer in a few weeks. Um, but you know, I, I told the kids when I came, as I've never taught before, there are 21 kids in the class, not tw or 20 students, the 21 students, I can't call them kids, <laughs> not 20, because I learn every day from you. And I, I really believe that in what I do in my life. Thanks, Mike. Okay, let's turn it to the crew. Who has the first question? Kim. Just what are you doing now? What's your current 
professionally, personally? So I was at a firm that, you know, that I mentioned for 20 some odd years, which was great. We moved to Park City and I sort of do the same thing, but sort of on my own. People can call it family office. <laughs> if you see my office, it's my dog in a mess. Um, but I love startups. So I'm still very active in a lot of startups. Uh, a, quite a bit here, but a, quite a bit elsewhere as well. And then, as I mentioned, you know, I decided to go down this path to try to teach a class, which is a really interesting journey for me. And um, it's my first year doing that. And it's sort of fun. And I have to prepare for my Tuesday lectures. So that's been that's sort of a fun path for me. Very cool. So not no plans to retire. I, you know, it's funny. My dad started a company in his seventies, um, and we always it, it, when he's ninety was it was past that time. But but you know, I don't know what I would do. I mean, I skied yesterday, so I have more flexibility and did that for you know a few hours. Um, I just love. I'm so addicted to entrepreneurs. Um, I gave uh, another side story. There's What's that funny hotel, the Zermatt thing, looking thing in Midway? I had to give a talk one time or I was getting, I took my son, I was getting on this little ward and the governor and all these people from more Utah County types were there. And um, so I, I hate public speaking. I don't know, what am I gonna do? So I'm gonna talk and I said, Zach, watch how this works. There's a, there's a place called La Cirque. Do you ever heard of this place? It's sort of a treatment center that's up by Sundance. Very famous, like Lindsay Lohan type people go there. And so it's in the shadows of this, right? So I, I'm giving this talk and I said, I'm here, you know, the governor, all these county people in coat and ties. And um, I, I said, I'm here because I have an addiction problem. And I said, Zach, watch this. You wanna see this room go silent? Boom, they're like, holy God, why do we give this guy this honor? And I said, and I just, I said, it's a moment of silence. Just let it sit for like, 10 seconds. And then I said, I'm here because I'm addicted. I have an addiction problem. And then I said, I'm addicted to entrepreneurship. And then I give my talk. And that's true. I just can't stop. I just love it. And I love the inspiration of entrepreneurs. And I, I, I don't really have time for another thing, but come over to the house, we'll go for a walk. And then I said, okay, I guess we should really help do this company or help you start this company. So probably take it to my grave. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so in life, I think there's pivotal moments for all of us where we could have gone one path or another. Is there a pivotal moment where you could have gone one way and didn't end up doing something that you're not even doing now? Yeah, I, I, the architecture one is truly, I mean, after my sophomore year at Stanford, I really considered transfer to MIT. They were, you know, really good architecture program and it's fairly technical coming from engineer. And so I spent a summer in Cambridge and spent a lot of time wandering around MIT thinking like, hmm, you know, do I want to do that path? And probably would have been fairly interesting. Architects are fabulous people that make nothing, um, but it also convinced me, actually it was really interesting because my grandparents lived in New York City. The Museum of, Natural, uh, Museum of Modern Art has a fantastic um, architectural division of the museum. And one of my favorite architects is a guy named Cabousier. And I remember seeing this beautiful, beautiful exhibit. And I walked through and I said, God, this is inspiration. You know, that's kind of like I wanted. And then I realized most of what I saw in that exhibit never got built. And that was an incredible experience for me. I said, whoa, this guy's like one of the greatest of the 20th century, books and all this stuff. And most of us had sketched with the beautiful models and sketches, never got built. And I said, 
I'm going to spend my life, if I ever get to that level, and most of what I do never gets seen the light of day, I said, ain't going down that path. So that was a turning point. And I said, I went back and then I got in um, to the graduate program at Stanford that was in this, in, it was part of mechanical engineering, but it was sort of, it was sort of the special division on the design team. And I said, I'm going to go do that and let's go start companies and be really creative. And time, it was everything. It was that time, you know, Steve Jobs was, you know, was my peer, you know, kind of thing. So we, these are friends and, and stuff. So it just, it, it couldn't have been a better time in my life and making that one turn. I'd probably be designing somebody's bathroom in, you know, Wichita today. So, yeah. Because you need an MIT engineer for that. Our architect. They're great architects, but uh, awesome. and I still love it. But uh, I'm going to hire a... Next question. Did Fountainhead ever uh, influence your childhood? It didn't. I was never a sci-fi guy. Interesting. And thinking that, I, although every once in a while it comes up in discussions, and I actually thought about it for actually this class. Um, it didn't fit into my syllabus as well, but I, partially because I haven't really read it. I mean, I know it, the story, but I'm thinking like if I do it, I really got to dig deep. So the book that I'm reading for next week's class is The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. That's one of the assigned books I have in my class. So my, I'm, I've sort of got my, my subject matter. Have you read your book yet I'm for your class? 70% of the way there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but as I have all my lecturers who come read the book that they're going to be talking about, and I just want to make sure that he reads his book. So, so it's, his book's called The Lucky One, and it's the role of immigrants played in the entrepreneurial story in this country. It, it's a particular story about there, but that's the lecture I get or the, the talk that we'll have is about the role that immigrants, like from Egypt, have played in sort of the entrepreneurial path of this country. I was going to ask during that, it sounds like once you got into the venture capital and starting companies, like you never look back. There are obviously difficult times in, and recessions and things and bubble bursts and everything. Was there ever a time where you were like, oh, this is not for me. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go do something else. Well, the, the, there was a little bit, there, was, there were some dynamics actually in our partnership one time that, and I ended up leaving with some others. I mean, we just, we had 20 great years. So I said, leave on the high note. Um, but here was the other part. I had no skills. I'd gone down this path for 20 years of finding entrepreneurs like yourselves and, you know, give them two nickels and hope that, you know, things go well. So I lost my skills clearly as an engineer. So I was never really a great engineer. I mean, and you think about mechanical engineers, which I was, mechanical design, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a computer guy, I wasn't a programmer, and I wasn't a double E kind of thing. That's where the world moved. I mean, who, you know, if I'm designing gears for bicycles, I'm like, like that's a small, I mean, actually, I did do a bike project, which was super fun. Um, but I sort of, like, I wasn't sure what I could do. And the things that I thought about when I left were completely, and I, I did various exercising, Venture didn't exist in the world. What would I do? You know, how would I do things? And uh, and a lot of them had to do with some nonprofit kind of missions and other stuff and and trying to, you know, as I, you know, I've been lucky. And so I, it's given me a little bit more flexibility to do different things. But uh, no, I, and I, that's why I encourage people. I said, you know, develop. I really push my kids, get these skills, you know, whether it's engineering or other things, and you can have those forever. You might go down another path if you can come back to them. I sort of never got deep enough in the engineering to sort of say that I can go always fall back on that skill. 
And actually, I went back full time as a student for a year, five years ago. I guess it was five years ago now to Stanford. Full-time was knapsack everything. And I was in a special program. I could take anything I want, med school, and everything. It was fantastic. And of course, I was older than all the teachers that I had. Um, and I went, they started this program where they took 24 people like myself from around the world to be in this thing. Because I was thinking of going back to architecture school. And my old partner at Mayfield said, there's this new program at Stanford. You know, you should apply. And I got lucky enough and got in because I thought maybe I would go back to architecture just for fun, not to design, just because intellectually I love design and that. And I thought that would be sort of a fun, fun thing. And it's sort of in the, every once in a while I think like, maybe I should go design a, I'm right now in my head, I'm thinking about designing a steel frame, a frame to have out in, you know, 40 miles that way to get away from Park City and hang out. And, and I went down to Michael's and got stuff and I'm building a little model of it. I don't know what will happen, <laughs> but it's, it doesn't leave me. Yeah, That's awesome. All right. Any last questions before we let Mike get back to his day? His dog. Yeah. Dog. <laughs> yeah. But two dogs, my daughter's dogs there. They, they went out there. Oh, Mike. Thank my you poor so dog much. knows all the stories. He can, if he could talk, he'd tell all the good and the bad. <laughs> He's seen, he's seen 14, he's 14 years old now and he's seen a lot of, a lot of so startups. I, I have one other question, curiosity. What are your kids doing? Are they, are they working with you or something? Well, my daughter claims every once I have a, um, I have twins. My son works for a company called The Athletic, which is a sports media company. It just got bought by the New York Times. So that's sort of fun for him to see the little company being bought up. So he's in the middle month one of that transition, which is really fun. My daughter worked for uh, Lorene Jobs at a, a venture philanthropy group called the Emerson Collective and doing social media strategy. And she just left at the end of December, January one or whatever. And she's in transition. So she's living off dad or staying here <laughs> and uh, looking. So she wants to get to a sort of LA area and work in sort of uh, entertainment, marketing, social media oh. things. So we'll see. But she she has sat through a lot of my meetings and she will claim to this day that I'm involved in a crazy, very interesting, what looks to be very successful company that she found. It turned out we found it actually through uh, Andrew's ex, oh. but two different my daughter founded independently of me when there were like three founders she found on the internet and it's a company called Better Place Forest, which is a, a really interesting company working with uh, land trust companies to build memorial parks for, for uh, cremation. Mm. And we're partnering, it's fantastic what's going on and blowing up. And so she will take claims. So she, they, they've helped me a lot because a lot of the stuff I see, I don't relate to. And so I ping things off, but she, there's a few companies where she's dead. I found that and, <laughs> and when it's worth, when it's worth, you know, permission off of and, and, well, I, I let the kid, yeah, I did give the kids a few shares of because she truly was helpful. And it, there was a long family path as to when my parents passed and what we did and it, I think it's going to be a very spectacularly successful company. So I give her credit. Mike, I'm so grateful for your time oh, this morning. This is grateful for your advice throughout the years. And finish your, your book. I will absolutely yeah. do that. I won't let you. You don't have to write the paper. My other 20 <laughs> students have to write a paper on the book. <laughs> <My> goodness. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you.